Before we get to this week's episode, I want to thank our sponsor for the month of November, the Honors College at Belmont Abbey. The Honors College at Belmont Abbey engages in the cultivation of the mind through the study and discussion of some of the greatest texts of the past and present. Combining experiences within the classroom with excursions beyond, the Honors College offers a foundational liberal arts education that prepares students for the ever-changing landscape of life. Students experience the beauty of an education rooted in truth and goodness with their own cohort at Belmont Abbey Honors College. At the Abbey, community, Christian values, and love are at the heart of it all. Explore the Honors College today at bac.edu backslash honors. Again, thank you to the Honors College at Belmont Abbey for sponsoring us all through the month of November. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined by two Biancos this time. It's the return of Patty and Alec for the return of Herodotus. How are you guys today? Doing well. Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's fun to have you guys back. So if you've been keeping up with us or if you read uh, or if you even just did the last time uh, we did Herodotus, you know that we we did book one. So we're coming back for book two. Decided that was the best way to kind of get Herodotus in on this show is to break it up into into parts and give give some breaks in between. So we are in book two. We left off, uh, in case you don't remember, with the death of Cyrus, uh, king of the Persians. Um, and we had spent a lot of time in book one talking about the Persians and Persian practices. And Herodotus tends to lead, use one uh, culture to lead into the next. And so we are picking up in book two, where he lets us know that Herodotus, uh, sorry, Cyrus's descendant, his his heir, Cambyses, uh, is preparing to wage war on Egypt. Uh, so this is the son of Cyrus's favorite wife and uh, he, he's going to prepare to launch into Egypt. So that launches Herodotus into Egypt and all that he knows about the Egyptians. This is a kind of an interesting, uh, it spans, we're reading this first section through um, 2.58, I think. Um, and he spends the most, most of that, a good chunk of that, um, describing the, the land, the, the landmass. So uh, the Nile, the Nile Delta, the, the, the what makes up Egypt between um, the Arabian Mountains and the Libyan Mountains, and a lot of time trying to figure out where the Nile, uh, where the Nile begins, why it flows, how it flows. It flows uh, south to north, which is strange. It it floods in the wrong season compared to other rivers. Um, so he goes into various claims about that and various theories since. The source of the Nile disappears uh, outside of the known known world's understanding. Um, it goes out through Ethiopia to the south and then a desert, a large desert, which there's little known about what's on the other side uh, at Herodotus' time. Um, and then he, toward the end of the section we're in today, he, he starts talking about some of the actual practices of the peoples, in particular, some of the religious practices. Uh, and this section, he spends most of his focuses on two things. One... One where the where the Egyptians differ in their practices from everybody else, kind of where they're almost the opposite, and then two, his proof or his arguments for why the Hellenes uh, received most of a lot of the things they they do from or a lot of the gods and a lot of the knowledge about the gods from the uh, Egyptians and not the other way around. That uh, kind of a claim that that a lot of the the known Mediterranean world's understanding of the gods um, starts with the Egyptians and is just kind of names or change and things like that but but uh, 
that that's the root of of their source uh starting with eight gods and then eventually the the, the pantheon of 12. Um, and that's kind of where we leave off so um kind of jumping right in after that we'll get into some of the more specific uh festivals of the gods and things like that but so thoughts on this on this uh, opening thoughts on this first section about the egyptians i think the opening story is the best part probably or at least one of the best parts of um you know the egyptian people is a very very old people but they were trying to figure out if they were the oldest or if the Phrygians were the older. And so they oh, right. ordered yeah. their child to be raised by the shepherd, well, on their own without the shepherds. And they came, you know, no human interaction at all to see what their first language would be. And it was a Phrygian word uh, for bread, bekos. And so they just admitted that, oh, okay, that proves it. Phrygians are older than Egyptians. Right. <laughs> we just don't do science like that anymore. It's such a shame. You know, we need to, we need to start doing these real empirical practices. <laughs> I like that. Like it's, it's clearly the mutterings of a two-year-old, right? Which anyone who has a two-year-old can know that you could be hearing a lot of different words. First of all, when you hear <laughs> a word, um, but they, they pick the language where whatever the word is they're saying is bread, which is to me interesting because they're just it's almost like the like the daily bread, right? That that guy just comes in and gives them food. That's all he does. And so it's a word for food, not to my mind was like it's gonna be something like mama or dada or something like that. But it was food. So that's what they went with. That was a pretty interesting story. Well, since the shepherd kept quiet about it at first, like I wonder if he's like, Yeah, they're just mumbling or just babbling and then <laughs> And then he brought it to the master. That is a curious experiment. I'm not I'm not sure if I would devise something like that. That would be right. <laughs> right. It is interesting to me that his proof is language, though, right? Like not um, like we, we're in a search for something like archaeological evidence that we can, you know, carbon date or something. But for him, like the proof of first manhood is 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 language is what separates man from the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whatever language was first is the peoples that were first. I thought that was kind of an interesting, um, mindset anyway. Yeah, that is good. I was curious about the Egyptians being first for a lot of things. Like it seems to go back and forth of, you know, the Greek stealing stuff from the <laughs> Egyptians, um, but they were very religious, right? They were first to assign altars, statues, temples, um, and then the river. He talks a lot about the river. There were some words I had to look up. I was like, I don't know what alluvial means, but he mentioned it a few different times. I think what he's trying to say is that the, all that water, all the land used, was underwater. Is that what he was saying? Like the gulf? It, it yeah, wasn't well, land before. Yeah, it was it was Gulf, and the land that's there is is dirt that was deposited by the river. So, growing up as a kid in what's in the Mississippi Delta, like we learn, like you learn a lot about that in science class. But, but yeah, like that's his whole argument is that that's part of why it's so fertile. Is all this is like really good soil that deposits from upstream, upstream, which is weirdly south for them. But I kept paralleling to the Mississippi River because it was talking in depth, right, that it's splitting Mm -hmm. Libya and Arabia and 
other than in the direct the flow of the direction, but the mouth and it just mm-hmm. being such a, a large river. I I was doing the same thing. I was like, oh, the Mississippi, except you know, it's just reversed. Yeah, he keeps he keeps comparing it to the one in on the European side that starts with an I, and I don't have it right in front of me. But I think for us, for Americans, it's probably the, the Mississippi is probably a good thing to like picture in our heads with the Nile because it is a similar like really long river, really fertile valley that surrounds the river. Um, and that's, it's what, it's probably what allows the Egyptians to have an early civilization, right? That outpaces everybody around them because they can create food so easily. You start doing other things once you can create food pretty easily. So I used to play this game called Pharaoh. So as I was reading this, that's, it just make me think of this game because you have to plant your fields and your houses and the Nile has to come through and, flood for your grain and stuff to grow so that you can make other things with it Um, and you have to go out and get the papyrus the reeds to make the papyrus and (laughs) so the description it was was reminding me of that game i don't know if anybody ever played that game but i like it it's like this is gonna this is gonna date me also that's like early early stages uh sim city where you have to like make a city that would wouldn't fall apart but i'm not even sure that exists anymore but yeah (laughs) For all you children out there, that was an old computer game where you had to build <laughs> civilization. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah, but I mean, we have lots of these kind of things, right? Like this, this, this idea endures in across board games and like what's ages and empires, all that kind of stuff. Where you're trying to, I guess we're fortunate that we can do it in games, and our food comes to us fairly easily. <laughs> well, it says in one part that they, you know, that was their food source, right? They needed the river to flood to be able to have their grains and stuff go but then they said that the greeks were unfortunate because they had to depend on rain they didn't have mm-hmm. any rivers and so it was up to zeus whether they <laughs> they were had famine or not which is true so i i you know it's just it is i don't think he solved the mystery of why the nile flows the way it does why you know the different seasons why does everything else except the nile do that so there there's something to that i don't know yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's interesting. The um, I don't read a ton of the notes in the bottom, like I, but sometimes that's gets down there. And the translator, I guess, they mentioned that they just that that we know now that it's like it's basically monsoons from the southeast side of Africa that they just had no knowledge of it. So that monsoon season then would cause cause the Nile to swell in a season that didn't make sense to them instead of like the summer when it. When they because everything else they're used to it, they swell from snow melt, mm-hmm. right? But this is like opposite pattern. But what I found really, really what was surprising to me about all of this was that he seems to have a pretty good understanding of geology. That that was surprising to me for when this was written. This understanding of this is how because he he says even like if you if you had diverted this if the river flew flowed into this gulf you would see the same thing happen. Like it would, it would build up this, this fertile pile of dirt basically and silt. And I don't know, that just seems to me that, that struck me as a pretty, um, even like the time frame. he's like, like, you know, 10,000 years, 20, like he has his estimates on how long it would be before to build up a landmass that big, hmm. which struck me as pretty, pretty advanced geological understanding for a guy writing a history book in like the 400s BC or something like that. So I don't know. That was that caught me off guard. And he seems to travel quite a bit. 
Although some of the notes said they didn't believe he traveled as, as far as he said he did, but he's talking about the different um, areas, right? Some were mm-hmm. more clay, um, knowing the different soils for different areas. It seems like you would have to do a lot of traveling to figure that out as well. It's interesting though. We just, so we just finished doing um, Plutarch, Andrea and Matt and I, and I noticed several times in there where that Plutarch's very clear about like which things he knows, which things he hear, like which things he's unsure of. Like we don't know exactly which like Curtis this is referring to at which time period, you know. And so he he's honest about where he's drawing his information from, and then which why he takes a certain stance or a certain opinion. And I feel like we get some of that at least from Herodotus as well. Like he he tells us, you know. I'm taking this from these priestesses or who these are the people that are giving me this story. And then anything beyond here is all conjecture because even none of them have really been past this point, you know, geographically. And so I feel like he, I know the, the, I agree. Like the, the, they seem to make comments about like, well, we're not sure if he really went there, but he at least seems to be taking someone else's firsthand account. If he, like, if he didn't physically go someplace and he seems to me like he does a pretty good, fair job of acknowledging when that's happening, which would be pretty rigorous, like modern historian standards, right, to do that. So uh, that's true. I also thought he, it was funny, like the, his just little comments of adding stuff in. I was like, well, I won't mention that. Or I think everybody knows that. So I don't need to mention that. <laughs> he has all these little assumptions that, you know, even like, you know, if you go this many miles in a boat, like I would know how that particular measurement, um, maybe the ancients did, but I wouldn't, <laughs> it goes mm-hmm. right over my head. I have no idea who you're mourning for. You have to tell me. <laughs> it's not clear to me. Yeah. It was really annoying when he kept cutting himself off. And then I, I was just like, what are, what are you talking about though? You tell me the story. I know it's inappropriate to tell me who they were, who they were sacrificing for, but <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> it's really yeah. annoying when, like, yeah, those are the ones that are like when he's like everybody knows like the distances or whatever, like he just says it. But it's really annoying when he's like, "But I'm not going to talk about that because it would be inappropriate." <laughs> it is amazing though how I didn't see the note about no not believing them and that he traveled, but it seems almost impossible to think that he's wrong because that he'd be lying about that because he's so scrupulous about every little detail. And even when he's talking about other people's accounts, he'll even say, you know, I, they say this about like one example was, you know, the Greeks said this story about Heracles that he came to, you know, someplace and then murdered a thousand people or something. And he's like, but if you actually know the Egyptian customs, they would never have done that. Like he, he wouldn't have done that because they don't sacrifice people. And that only comes from somebody who either has very good sources or actually spent time amongst the Egyptian people. So it's very clear that he does that. And he's also very honest at times. He says, I, I only went to here and then I didn't go any past, I didn't go past this. I just used, you know, I just talked to people there. Mm-hmm. So he seems to be fairly forthcoming about what he's doing and how he's approaching it all. So it's a sort of a, I think it's sort of the first, what we would call like rigorous historical yeah. and 
and scientific kind of pursuit. And he seems to mostly challenge the um, the presumptions of his own people, right? Hellenes, Ionians, people we think of like as part of the Greek culture who he's writing to. Um, he seems to mostly discredit, you know, their their legends and their stories about these other peoples. Um, you know, when it comes down to, I mean, other a few others, but that's mostly who he seems to be kind of pushing back against. I like that he goes out and he tries to get accounts of people. I'm sure it could be wrong. Just like we, you know, maybe you're from Alabama and you have no idea what a New Yorker is like (laughs) if you've never been to New York, but to actually decide like, well, I'm going to go, you know, to New York and find out, or I'm going to go to Alabama and find out what they're like. And so maybe some things aren't exactly right. So I think they had a note about, you know, he talks about the Egyptians not eating wheat and barley or something. And then the note says, mm-hmm. no, they had this dish of barley, but still it, you know, he's taken the time to go travel there one and talk to all these people and get these accounts and then decipher, okay, what is the true, what is the, I guess, to him, the most true account of history of what happened? Yeah. I was just talking to someone who's kind of background is in poetry about um, Evangeline, the Longfellow poem. And he was telling me that, you know, there was, there's been criticism of him over time that like was part of that. That's a historically based poem too. It's a diaspora of French people from Canada down to into the filtered all the way down to America's and and, I mean, North America, I mean, United States of America and Louisiana in particular, but you know, Longfellow was in Boston and he's like the parts about Louisiana. He gets, he gets, how, like how could a guy from Boston know, right? Like, but then there's there's evidence that that they were that he was talking to people who were either like descendants of that diaspora or part of that diaspora who were then students back in because he was a, he was a professor at Harvard for a while, mm-hmm. and so like he's talking to people from the Acadian region of so the same deal, right? Where if he doesn't have firsthand knowledge, he's trying to at least talk to people who it's their lived experience. And I feel like I get that same experience, same thing here from Herodotus. So, yeah, it, it seems to he, he he makes sure you he knows you know who he's talking to, like the priestess in this city at this temple, you know, like where he's getting his source material from. Um, I do appreciate them mentioning the gods, though, because I'm not as familiar. So when he would bring up the Egyptian god, and then he would call it by the Greek name too, so. <laughs> I know that Ammon is Zeus and um, who was Osiris is, um, can't remember now who Osiris is. One of them is Dionysus, but I don't remember which one. That might be it. That might be Dionysus. Uh, I was thinking what you said earlier, Brandon, about how because of their proximity to the Nile and, and that, that, their civilization was able to take off more quickly. And it seems, I wonder too, if that's also connected to their religious observances and practices, because, you know, he's talking about how um, sort of strict and restrictive they are. Like there's a lot of honor for the, their priests and stuff, and they have to do a lot every single day and every week, um, you know, basically taking up all of their time doing all of these religious observances and obviously how that affects the whole culture and like what they can eat and drink and 
you know, all of these, their cleanliness uh, practices, all of that stuff, you know, it's all, all connected to their, to their religion. And, and I wonder too, if that's the part of, you know, being such a relatively speaking civilized people at the time, that that translates to more religious observances. Whereas like, you know, the barbarians, whoever they are, probably doesn't seem like from what I can remember in the stories and stuff to have the same kind of strict religious observances. I mean, everybody does, but not, not nearly as strict or as sort of orderly as the Egyptians. It's interesting. Yeah. I forget like, uh, I forget the, like the length of time between these, between a lot of these things in the ancient world, but by Herodotus time, Egypt's already been a very civilized place for a very long time. Cause I was doing, as I started looking, I'm gonna, I'll get into this in a minute. I mean, I'll bring it up in a minute, but some of the practices uh, I wanted to look back and see like, what's the distance between like when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt to Herodotus, it's like several hundred years. Right. So in Moses time, Egypt's already very, very sophisticated as far as civilization goes, um, uh, architecture, all those kind of things. Um, and it still is again, it still is in Herodotus' time. And like several other empires kind of come and go during some of this stuff. And Egypt gets taken over, you know, but it doesn't ever like get eradicated, which I think is interesting. Um, we, even to modern day, it's one of the few places that has its same name, right? It's still Egypt. Um, and and if, I don't know, that, that, that strikes me as very interesting that... Um, you know, some of that is, like you said, due probably to the fact that it's so fertile right there that even if you conquer it, you're not going to destroy it because it's a good resource, right? And so um, it it has this ability because of all the, that natural bounty to to kind of really culture cultivate all kinds of culture, um, cultural aspects, including religious practices and art and architecture and music and things like that. So um, that others then borrow from and like build their own civilizations, like kind of on some of the things they import in, in a lot of ways, it seems like so, or at least according to what he's saying here, I found it really interesting I mean, because I don't know much about the, 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 the specific practices of the Egyptians during Moses time. I found it interesting. Some of the things that he notes in compare and then comparing that to um, like the law of Moses and the Israelite culture and things like that. Uh, let's see around section 2.37. It talks about uh, kind of middle of that page on 134. It says there, um, it talks about they're, they're really strict about like cleaning their cups, just re the regular cups, wearing freshly clean garments. And then it says they circumcise their men for the sake of cleanliness. Like they're, they're the only ones, as far as Herodotus knows, that circumcise people. Um, but this would have obviously been long after the Israelites had done that, right? And then they, the reason they shave everywhere is to prevent like lice and other things. It's a, it's a cleanliness issue. Um, and it goes into some of the same things with the priests, right? They, they, they wash twice a day, like all these things that strike me as very um, similar to uh, the Israelite practices, the law of Moses practices. Um, but it would have been several hundred years after the, after they lost to the God of the Israelites. So, you know, 
I, I'm curious. It makes me curious about how many of those things were going on before then and how many of them are things that, that they kind of added over time after that. But um, including like they don't touch pigs, you know, that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But the pigs help them get their crops. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting. They just put them in the field. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting relationship with pigs and swine herds, but. Like the goats and rams, I thought was interesting too. That they some held the goats in high esteem, and and the rams, mm-hmm. except that one time of year they would do a sacrifice. And so then I was wondering that same timing of, um, you know, thinking back to Abraham and Isaac when there was a ram there mm-hmm. for him to sacrifice, and was that a, a pointing? you know, would it be pointing to the Egyptians to help save them, right? Some of that overlap, or mm. was that something that, I don't know, it's just a curious connection. Yeah, and because they have a real similar um, requirement of of the things they do sacrifice, the male bulls being completely spotless, right? Like white fur bulls that are completely without any kind of mark and on the hair and the tongue and all these kind of things. And so that struck me as very similar um, also. And so, yeah, where, where do those things start to overlap is what's, what's, is what's uh, it's like an unanswered question here because there's this gap between that time of Moses, which Herodotus doesn't seem to have much knowledge about the Israelites um, so far anyway. And so he's, that's kind of Egyptian history that he's not, doesn't seem to be very privy to or, or understand very well. At least not when he's presented us so far. But maybe you don't want to publicize the time thousands of slaves revolted and got away. If you're telling if you're telling the if you're telling, <laughs> yeah, the, if you're telling the Greek guy. be sharing that story. <laughs> yeah. So this one time. All our firstborn died. That's right. Yeah. There was this one time where our gods got crushed. So yeah. I don't I'm curious what you guys think is does he like Homer and Hesiod or does he not? Because he mentions them quite a bit, the poets. And I, you know, some of the same gods you you read in the poetry, like Io and the the cow, the oxide, like some of the language mm. I can see. But then he he tends to, I don't know, I maybe I'm just reading it that way. Maybe he he likes Homer and Hesiod. He says they're about 400 years mm-hmm. before him. I he think. Says, yeah, I think he says no more, no more than 400. Yeah. What uh, What about it leads you to think he may discount them or in some way? Yeah, I need to find it. I think it was where he was talking about theogony. And it's uh, he starts talking about them on page 142, I think. I guess in here, he's trying to give us his take on how the god started and maybe that's where he disagrees and the genealogy of how these gods came to be okay yeah i'm not sure he but what i wasn't sure about he says um he thinks they're the first that's i mean i read it as him saying like these are the two that kind of gave us the descriptions of the gods and it seems like at his in his time other hellenes 
are claiming that there were some other poets that preceded them that gave us some of that information. And his argument is that those poets actually lived after them. But I don't know which who he's talking about. All oh, I can think is it would yeah. be maybe some of the maybe some of the playwrights or something that 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 they that they were claiming, or maybe he's referring to works that I'm I'm just not aware of. Okay. Yeah, I could be just making it all up. <laughs> Can't remember well, now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I, I didn't read him as I didn't read him as like liking or disliking them more stating that from his point of view they're the ones who gave us these descriptions that they were that were received from the egyptians maybe by way of these oracles that are like basically egyptian turned greek oracles but that was interesting to me that there's like these two competing stories about how egyptian priestesses became the first kind of Hellenistic oracles. Um, but both of them start with two priestesses being priestesses being um, kidnapped by the Phoenicians. And then he tries to reconcile some of it, like the more fantastical parts, which is interesting for his time period. He's like, ah, they probably weren't really doves. Black doves seems a little weird, but and then he kind of tries to reconcile it. I like his explanation of that. That because they were barbarians, they sounded like birds because they couldn't <laughs> understand them. And then when they figured, finally learned how to speak Greek, it was, oh, they're speaking like humans. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. It's interesting. He's he's pretty like clear that the Egyptians of his day are fairly dark-skinned. I mean, he's like, they're black. That's why they would have thought it was a black, they would have called it a black dove, supposed to, which doesn't even exist, right? It's just there aren't. Not to my knowledge, there are black doves. So, um, but he says that several times. He talks about the darkness of their skin several times when he's referring to how hot it is there, like, and how much they're under the sun. And so it's interesting in our modern modern political climate where there's all these arguments about what people should look like in, in historical de depictions of the Egyptians. Yeah, that that is interesting. It seemed like it was common knowledge that. There would be black there. Yeah, they seem they seem very, or at least to be able to, they seem very similar with uh, to the to the Ethiopians of their time, as there's a lot of kind of back and forth marriages, and then some of those Egyptians leave and go become part of Ethiopia. Those those guards or whatever, um, which would suggest to me that the big difference in the area isn't uh, ethnic the way we would think of it, but but who they're worshiping and how they're worshiping um, those gods, but, and then fealty to a king, obviously. He mentions the original eight and then the 12, but I don't know that I know the, who the original eight are. Do you guys know? Not of the Egyptian pantheon or who their counterparts would be. That, that thing is interesting because in Greek mythology, we tend to get, well, there's the older one. There's the there's the Zeus generation, right? Which would be Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hera. Really? I don't remember off the top of my head which ones are children. Like um, Athena's a child. Uh, uh, Aphrodite's a child of that generation. But I don't remember like Ares and Artemis. I, I can't remember if they're um, of the children child generation. 
think they mentioned Demeter too. Okay. That are the children of Oh yeah, that makes sense because Zeus was wasn't Zeus the eighth child that Kronos was gonna eat. That sounds about right. Oh, okay. And he he springs the other seven, so maybe whoever those are would be the eight original. And then the ones that are the other ones that make up the twelve would be the children of them. In the Greek pantheon, I might have to go back and read the Agony. Yeah, yeah, maybe, <laughs> I, I meant to dig into that a little bit before the next reading because, um, well, I haven't read the Agony at all, but but it'd be interesting if that's the same eight that the that he's saying the Egyptians claim for the original eight, and then others were added. Uh, maybe as we get into some of these festivals, they'll kind of he'll delineate who some of those gods are in the next section. I'm not sure. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that too much. I was wondering too why I don't remember. Uh, he seemed like he kind of was giving an explanation, but I don't really remember. They don't. They didn't, the Egyptians didn't accept Poseidon as a god, mm-hmm. but the Greeks did. And I was wondering if it was because the Greeks were more seafaring, and the Egyptians weren't. And if there's something about that going on, or if there's some other reason. Yeah, I couldn't tell if he was saying they, saying they didn't recognize a sea god or if they if that's just not a name they got from the Egyptians. Like that that name came from somewhere else and the Egyptians had some other name for the sea god. But I couldn't quite tell. Because that would seem strange to me that I would think you would think being on that coast, they would have been seafaring some across the Mediterranean. But yeah. I read it as they, they didn't recognize him at all. Okay. Interesting. That one and the other one that started with a D. Can't find his name now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember either. That was the other connection to Homer is when they were talking about how the Nile came about and some theory was it came from ocean. And it's the ocean that it talks oh. about on the shield of Achilles. That is a point where you're right that he would he basically said he disagreed with he, um, Homer that he did uh, he did he wasn't acknowledging that idea that, that ocean is the because for Homer ocean is the river that circles the whole thing right that circles the mm-hmm. the world um, and and I think that that is a place where he was disagreeing with Homer that there's not this that that's not the source of the Nile doesn't make that's he I don't agree with that kind of thing so I'd forgotten about that. He does say too that they don't they don't worship. Um, I guess Dioscori Dioscori is heroes. They don't do hero worship. The Egyptians don't in the way the Greeks do. That's when he's talking about that. There's probably two different Hercules or Heracles that's in here. That, um, yeah. That. Oh, is that what that is? I was I was thinking it was another god, but that's just hero worship yeah uh well well I only, i'm guessing that's what it means because it says the egyptians do not believe in heroes at all so um but it's right in the same place where he's talking about the they don't have the name of poseidon yeah but that's interesting to me that he's claiming that that the greeks got the name hercules or that 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 hercules of the greek fame is probably named after this older uh egyptian god that he was kind of given a god name and that his ancestry are descended from egyptians um 
which is the only place I've seen that claimed. Um, not that I've read a ton of Greek history, but uh, yes, that section right before that. Um, now it seems to me that Alampos, son of Amatheon, was not ignorant of this sacrificial ritual. I think rather that he was actually quite familiar with it, for it was Malampos who disclosed the name of Dionysus to the Hellenes and who taught them how to sacrifice to him and perform his phallic procession. Strictly speaking, he did not reveal everything to them, but the sages who were his descendants completed the revelation. So it's like they were that they were that they got all that from the uh, Egyptians and then um, pass it on, and that they they were that the Hercules we're all were more familiar with is actually descended from Egyptian stock. Hmm. Is that word like one thirty seven? The Hellenes I consider the most orthodox are those who have founded and maintained two distinct sanctuaries of Heracles. Sacrificing to one as an immortal with the epithet Olympian, and to the other as hero with offerings appropriate to the dead. So, at, at least in his time, there are people who recognize not recognized it with temples. So, some some parts of the Greek world so leads some credence to his distinction between the two. Well. I think now I'm, what I'm most curious about in this next section, if he's going to start going into these festivals of different gods, if we'll get a little bit better understanding of, uh, you know, which gods from the Egyptian pantheon became the gods of the Greek pantheon. That's uh, something I'll be looking for in this next section for sure. Well, it was just dawning on me that it starts out with them attacking Egypt, but he hasn't really talked about how Egypt, <laughs> like their armies or anything. So I guess right. we'll get into that. Now he's just kind of, I guess, laying out the geography and the religious aspects. Yeah. First. It'd be interesting to see what, if those two get pulled back together by the end of the uh, book too. Um, but yeah, we need a lot more information on kind of the military might and of Egypt for that. Maybe that's where the gods come in. They help them out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about Pan too. I, I don't know much about Pan, but it, I was listening to a little bit of the Wind in the Willows, and there was this chapter with Pan in it. And uh, so, let's see he's, if they go in more into that. He's interestingly a a god concept that seems to have lingered, like well into modernity. Right? It ends up in it ends up in Tolkien. Um, it ends up in the Winds in the Willows. Um, and if he's art, like he seems to be saying that he's one of the oldest, mm -hmm. uh, even among the Egyptians. Um, so that's that is interesting to kind of think about. You know, what's the what's the enduring quality of Pan that he seems seems to resurface even in very post pagan eras, right? Well, I'll mention the inappropriate, just like Herodotus. <laughs> Alec, anything you're looking for in particular in the next one? I'm just kind of curious about this relationship between the Greeks and the Egyptians and how the Egyptian or the Greeks may have learned some of their customs from the Egyptians. And he seems to 
almost seems to be suggesting there's a kind of back and forth between both of them mm-hmm. instead of introducing customs both ways or I don't know. So it's a very interesting concept of taking other sort of customs and cultures and bringing them together. So it'll be interesting to explore that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. We, um, as you can see on the title, we, we stopped this section at, uh, 260, no, 2.58. Um, and so for those of you at home, we'll be greeting next time from that 2.59 through, um, 2.121. I know this is a weird numberings, but they're, I think the traditional numberings, um, help us break it up a little bit. Um, and that should get us through a lot of the, um, a lot of the festivals we're going to talk about and then get us into, um, I think more of these contacts between direct contact between, uh, the Greek world and the Egyptian world. Um, so that's, uh, at least through some of what we know from Greek, Greek, uh, poetry and myth, epic poets and myths. So we'll start to see some contact with characters we're familiar with from the Iliad and the Odyssey and things like that. So it should be pretty fun in the next section. But uh, I think that's a good place for us to stop this week. Uh, We can pick up and talk about this next time. Sounds good. All All right. right. Well, thank you guys for being being here. Um, Everybody that's listening, thank you for pulling the book off the shelf and cracking it open with us uh, for this episode of Overdue Classics. Again, join us next week. We'll be back in book two of Herodotus, um, going from 2.59 through 2.121. If you have the landmark version, that starts on page 144 and ends on page 169. So we'll see you guys then. Um, You can send your questions or comments to podcast at circeinstitute.org and be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network. 